So there is a game this afternoon, all right? Um, how many of you plan on actively, passionately watching the Super Bowl this afternoon? Right on. I, I don't know what to do with the rest of you, but I'm grateful. Like, I'm grateful that you're here. Grateful that you're here. Pray for me. Uh, Sharon and I are going to be with some friends who don't fully appreciate uh, the, the bigness of the moment, but we're going we're gonna to gather in fellowship anyway um, and watch. Uh, interesting fact that some of you who shot your hand up quickest will know is that it's kind of the matchup of, of two quarterbacks, uh, the, the senior great in Tom Brady and the young up-and-comer already great in Patrick Mahomes. And Patrick Mahomes was in kindergarten when Tom Brady won his first Super Bowl. So uh, that's kind of where, the, so, you know, like the, the, the 40-something in me wants to root for Tom, right? Uh, but then the other part of me, uh, who married a, a woman from Lubbock, uh, who's a passionate Texas Tech fan, feels I should root for Patrick, so maybe I'll root for whoever wins. Um, I don't mind admitting that. I like winners just that much. Um, we are going to be in the book of Jonah this morning. I want to give you guys a few minutes uh, to find it. If you need help, it's right in between Obadiah and Micah. Um, actually, it's just a, a few books, five or six books before um, the beginning of the New Testament. Small book, one of 12 uh, so-called minor prophets, not minor in their message, but just minor um, in their length. Um, Jonah, Jonah was there and we're here. Jonah was then and we're now. But I think what we're going to find out together over the next few weeks as we go through this series that we creatively named Jonah is that his story is our story. His story is your story. His struggles are your struggles. And the same God who passionately pursued and showed such tremendous divine patience with Jonah is the same God that pursues you day in and day out. The reality that we find as we look at chapter 1 of Jonah is that every one of us, in a myriad of ways, every day is running toward God or away from God. We're running toward God with our entire life in pursuit or away from God. We're running toward God in parts of our lives and away from Him and in other pieces that we just live struggling to submit to Him and trust Him in. We're gliding further from God spiritually or we're growing toward God, toward God. But we always glide away. It takes effort to walk with God. It takes effort to grow in God. The drift is always away from the people that he intends us to be. And I would just ask you before we start with Jonah chapter 1 this morning, I would ask you to be really honest with yourself. Because you will not hover with regard to your relationship with God. You will not hover with regard to becoming the man or woman that God designs you and desires you to be. You'll grow toward him or you'll glide away from him. Where are you this morning? If your habits and how you spend your time and how you spend your money and, and your closest relationships, if the veil was pulled back on that, what would it say about the desires of your heart, the pursuits of your heart? Let's look at Jonah chapter 1 and begin by reading verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, 
because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out in his own, or to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Jonah was a runaway. He was a snoozing runaway. As the work of God is unleashed at this moment. Sociologists tell us that there are a number of reasons people run away. I'm going to share a few with you. There's the, the, the circus runaway. These are people who run away just in pursuit of adventure. They just want to see what's out there. They're excited to experience new things. There are the abused runaways. They just run away to get away from and put distance between them and what's going on at home. There's the, and I know this one will shock you, there's the attention runaways. They run away for no other reason than to call attention to the fact that they ran away. All right? Then there is the orphan runaway. They run away because no one's home anyway. No one's home anyway and they don't feel like it matters. There's the vagrant runaway that wants to go and just see if the world is as big and wide and nasty as they believe it is. Some of you will remember, especially here, some years back, the runaway bride. And I don't mean the movie. I mean the woman from Duluth, Georgia, who just a few days prior to her wedding with 40 groomsmen and 40 bridesmaids, hey, dads, preparing for weddings of your daughters. How does that one sit with you? 600-plus attendees invited suddenly disappears. Anybody remember that? She disappears. They put up uh, wanted or, or searching in search of missing billboards. Law enforcement kicks into gear to find her. And then a few days later, she calls her fiancé from Albuquerque, New Mexico and says that she'd been abducted by a Hispanic man and his white female partner, and they let her out in Albuquerque. Law enforcement met up with her. It took them about three and a half minutes to find out she was lying and to unpack that story. She'd just gotten cold feet, and she ran. She bought a bus ticket. For Nevada and somehow got off in Albuquerque. She came back. She did have charges pressed on her. She uh, was put on probation, had to uh, pay fines and make restitution for the costs that had been incurred in her search. And her sweet and caring fiance walked right back into the courtroom with her hand in hand. Not sure I'd have been there, right? But maybe their love was real. I don't know. Uh, some of you will remember this story, one of my favorite runaway stories, April 2014. A 15-year-old boy, can we agree that teenagers, and we all were once one, if you're not one now, you will be if you're younger, so we were one. Teenagers are not known for the high caliber of wisdom in their decision-making. We agree? You agree that you probably had some blunders as a teenager? Well, this guy had a doozy. He's from San Jose, and he decides he's going to run away he somehow gets through the fence of the San Jose airport, 
runs out and climbs up in the wheel well of a commercial aircraft. So right, not an honor student, probably. Climbs in there, doesn't know where it's going, doesn't care. Well, this particular plane is going from San Jose to Maui. So he takes a five-hour flight in sub-zero temperatures and oxygen-depleted heights of 36,000-plus feet to Maui. Passes out, gets there, and somehow, by the grace and goodness of God, comes back from his catatonic state and drops out of the wheel well and is sort of wandering around on the tarmac and is picked up. He tells authorities he doesn't remember much of the trip. Can you imagine? His body, thankfully for how God causes our bodies to work, senses this lack of oxygen and passes out to protect the vital organs, which can I say is good? Because with his decision-making capabilities, we don't want him using oxygen that the rest of us need. So he lands there. Jesus tells the story of a runaway, the prodigal son. A son who says, Dad, give me my stuff. I'd really rather have it than, than you anyway. And the son runs off and he finds out that the life of a runaway is often not very pleasant. But Jesus has to be the greatest runaway, not Jesus. Jonah. It'd be bad if Jesus was a runaway. Two J's, but not the same name. Same amount of letters. Jonah is probably the greatest runaway in the Bible. And there's a reason that the book of Jonah has resonated with the church across the years. Let's take a look at the verses we just read. We'll begin back again with verses 1 and 2. And we kind of enter mid-story here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, like I said, we jump in here sort of mid-story, but we know, we know from 2 Kings 14 that Jonah was a prophet. That Jonah was engaged in the prophetic ministry of the northern kingdom of Israel, speaking to God's people on behalf of God. And one of the most significant enemies that they had at that time was the Assyrians. And God says, hey, I want you to go. I want you to go. Now, we don't know how God spoke to Jonah. We tend to assume, don't we, that anytime we read something like this in the Old Testament, it was audible. Do we not tend to make that assumption? Uh, there's nothing in the Old Testament text in most of the places where God is speaking to someone that would cause us to believe with, with solid evidence that, that it was any different than God speaks to us sometimes today. Uh, a few years ago, there was a, uh, a well-known president, prominent president of a, a major denomination who decided not to run for another term and he was doing media interviews and one of the cynical reporters asked him in a little bit of a snarky way he said why uh, did, did God tell you that audibly and he said no ma'am he spoke much louder than that much louder than that we don't know how God speaks to Jonah here but he does he does and if if God indwells his people right in in your life and mine he doesn't have to run outside the house and yell back through the window you and I tend to think if he just say it audibly, I'd do it. But that's not true. That's so, we, we so confuse the depth of our own disbelief. Our own disbelief. Now, everything in a sense old is new and everything new is old. I think uh, the more years you get behind that, the more you realize 
that's true. Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, uh, was like going into the stronghold of ISIS. They were the ISIS of their day, but far more powerful and far greater in number. And God says, I want you to go and I want you to preach on my behalf to them. Th this would be like God saying to you, hey, I want you to go to Tehran and I want you to go to Hassan Rouhani and I want you to say, hey, listen, Prez, God loves you. If you'll just confess your sin and repent, he's got a great plan for your life. It'd be like God saying, hey, I want you to go to Pyongyang, which is my favorite city name to say, Pyongyang, North Korea, because Kim Jong-un there just doesn't understand me. And his wickedness has come up before me. So I want you to go to Pyongyang, and I want you to track down Kim, and I want you to tell him in between missile tests and plates of donuts that, I shouldn't have said that, that's too far. Um, I want you to tell him that if he'll simply repent of his sin, Confess the sin to me, then I'll save him. And I've got a plan for his life. Be like going to Damascus, Syria, and telling Bashar al-Assad, hey, I know that you enjoy gassing your own people, killing women and children to hold on to power, but if you'll just repent of your sin, my God will save you. He's got a great plan for your life. I don't think any of us would be as excited as we tend to think we might be. I think our response might be a lot like Jonah's. But here's the thing. It's not so much that Jonah's scared, that he's scared to go to the Assyrian capital and preach to them, as it is that he's certain of God's character. And he doesn't want them to receive the same grace he and his people have been given. Chapter 4, verse 2, we find out and we'll look at in a few weeks more in depth why Jonah didn't want to go. He prays after they do indeed repent, so there's a spoiler for you. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He knew that if he went, they were likely to repent, and God's love would be poured out on them. God's pursuing love is, by every conceivable human standard, reckless. In a few minutes on the other side of uh, our time in the text here, uh, we're going to sing a song. We're going to worship the song called Reckless Love. Now this is not reckless, meaning it's foolhardy, or there's any chance in God's love. It's reckless in the sense that it's unsettling. It's unrelenting. It's reckless in the sense that you and I don't have the capacity to love that way. It's reckless in the sense that we see in Hosea, God telling Hosea, I want you to go and to marry a promiscuous prostitute and make her your wife and have children with her and love her in spite of her behavior. And Hosea does it. But it doesn't turn her heart quickly 
And she continues in the lifestyle and leaves him. And God says, I want you to go find her and buy her back and love her anyway. On any human standard, that is reckless love. You and I would advise anyone in that situation to put up proper barriers and to guard themselves emotionally and to leave that individual. And Jonah knew this love. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a, a non-Lost Mountain person reach out via uh, our online presence and just say, hey, um, if you guys are the Lost Mountain Church that has bow or burn on your sign, I just want to commend you um, for telling the truth to everyone. Can I assure you we are not that Lost, Lost Mountain Church? Uh, we will not, nor will we ever have bow or burn. But here's the funny thing that this individual didn't know. That was a sister church in the area, and that was the title of a message from Daniel. So it, it wasn't this hyper-religious, godless message that they were commending us for giving. Because I'll tell you, you don't find any of that God revealed in Jesus Christ. You don't find the taunting bow or burn kind of message. And I tell you, when Jesus has a hold of your heart and my heart, that's not our attitude either. Let's show these nasty people who aren't like us, how foul and arrogant is that. There's no place for that. Jonah knew nothing of that God. He knew of a God whose grace was relentless, whose pursuing love would be reckless by any human standard. And he said, I don't want to go because I know what's going to happen. God says, go to Nineveh. But look at verse 3. Instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah goes to Joppa. He boards a ship for Tarshish. Now, if you're looking at a map of Jonah's world, Nineveh, modern-day Mosul, Iraq, the, the ruins of Nineveh are still there today. Nineveh is 500 miles to the east, and Tarshish is about as far west as the known world was in Jonah's day. It was the southwest coast of modern-day Spain. If there was wet footprints down by the coast, Jonah's feet would be going away from God. He'd be fleeing from the presence of God. And I want to ask you this morning, have you ever run from God? You ever heard, heard God say go and you said, I think I'll sit? Have you ever heard God say sit and stay and you said, I think I'm going to go? Have you ever heard God say, submit this to me and you said, no, I'm doing just fine with that one? Got some other things, some people I'd like to submit to you. But I got this one under control. Jonah's story is our story. God says go, but instead he calls an Uber donkey and he heads in the opposite direction. All right? He texts his friends, he says, I'm out of here. Sets his email to out of the office and he flees. He flees from the presence of God. Sometimes in our own lives, if we're honest, it's hard to understand with our choices and our decisions if we're running to something or from something. I've got a, a very close friend who's wise and I trust, and uh, he will ask me that from time to time. Hey, with this pursuit, with this decision, with this desire, man, just make sure you're running to something and not from something. I have a uh, professor, former professor and mentor who uh, was asked to go out some years back and preach at First Baptist Church 
um, in Hollywood. And when we lived in California, I walked by there. Um, I'd walked by there many times. It's on uh, just off the the famed corner of Hollywood and Vine, a church that was built to seat 1,500, uh, and once seated that regularly on a weekend. Uh, but the morning that he was there, it had declined like so many churches. There were about 50 people present. And he said even though they were Baptists, they kind of gathered at the front of the church because there were so few of them. And they sat in the first few pews and they were telling him that some weeks back uh, they were kicking off the service and once it got started and rolling, the actress Reese Witherspoon slipped in the back door. And she sat down near the back of the sanctuary. And she just sat through the service quietly, certainly not seeking any recognition. Um, Her name and her story was in the news a lot at that time. And I think sometimes you and I forget that these people are real people. And before the service was over, she stood up and slipped out. And they were just so curious. They'd never seen her before and hadn't seen her in the few weeks since. Was she running to something? Was she running from something? They didn't know. Look at verse 4, though. Jonah runs, but the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The ship threatened to break up. All of a sudden, the circumstances had changed. The circumstances had changed. Now, if you and I think we can outrun God, I would just have us hear the word of the psalmist this morning in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Some of you came in to church this morning, and emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, you are in the depths. And I would just... Here, I would just have you hear God say, I am there. I am near. I am with you. Verse 9, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There's nowhere that we can go to outrun God. Look at verse 5. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, Marduk, Baal, Isis, on and on. These pagan gods went. These men are crying out. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten up the ship. But the rest of verse 5 tells us Jonah had no worries. He was down below deck sleeping. Any of you know someone who can sleep through anything? Any of you married to someone who can sleep through anything? This is where Jonah was. And these Phoenician ships, the the, the Hebrew people were not sailors. They were terrified of the sea. These would have been Phoenician and Syrian sailors. And these ships were larger than we typically think. One going this distance would have had a crew of a minimum of about 30 men, maximum up to around 50 men. So there's quite a few men. And these were experienced sailors, right? These are rough men. They're tough men. They were men's men, but they were scared because when, because when God sends his wind to stir up a storm, he can stir up a storm like we are not used to. Something that's lost in English often, but is very interesting in the Hebrew, is interesting, is that the same word in verse 4 for sent a great wind 
is the same Hebrew word in verse 5 that we translate in English as threw the cargo over the sea. And I don't want you to miss this. In a sense, God threw a great wind on the sea, creating this storm. And their attempt to handle it was to throw stuff overboard. It's almost pitiful, if you think about it. And I'll just tell you, if God hurls a storm into your life to get your attention, there's nothing that you can hurl back at him to make it stop. If he hurls something into your business world, you can't throw back to him a business plan. You can't say, hold on, Lord, I was just in Atlanta, right? Went through a two-day conference. I've got this under control. I'm going to submit my PowerPoint notes to you, and you'll understand. If God hurls a storm into the life of your health, you can't throw back a medicine bottle to him. If God hurls a storm towards your possessions, you can't hold up a balance sheet. Now, not everything we experience, good, bad, or indifferent, is hurled directly at us by God. But I will tell you, the soft blanket for your soul when things are coming undone in your life is the sovereignty and the goodness of God. That nothing enters the lives of his people that does not come directly from him, or passes through his direct sovereign power. And you can rest in him and trust in him. Francis Bacon was a 19th century um, poet in London. His father was a a well-known physician. He was a, a medical school graduate and a doctor. But he ran from the family faith and ran from medicine. Spent many years, got caught up in the opioid addiction the drug of choice in that day, in and out of the opioid dens and houses. Um, Some of you may be familiar with Tombstone, not the terrible frozen pizza, but the movie Tombstone. They do a great job in that movie of painting a picture of what 19th century opioid dens or houses were like, uh, not just in America, but in England as well. As his life was unraveling, And he was running intentionally from God. Eventually God pursues him hard enough. He he comes back to God and he writes a poem called The Hound of Heaven. Because what he realized was that no matter how far he ran, the pursuing, relentless, seemingly reckless love of God continued to chase him like a hound nipping at his ankles. And in the the, the last line of the first stanza of that poem says, All things betray me who betrays thee. And what he was saying was that no matter what I run to, it never seems to provide what it promises. Everything I'm reaching out for to satisfy the brokenness in me is not able to do it. And I'll just say this morning, church, that everything you run to, looking for what only God can provide, will eventually betray you. Everything that you're trying to find your identity in, other than the redeeming goodness and power of Christ, will come up short for you again and again. Let's pick up Jonah's story in verse 6. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? 
How can you sleep? If you're married, has there ever been a time when you said that to your spouse? Right? Sharon and I have somewhat flipped on this now. I don't know if it's because we have, again, twin toddlers in the house, but she can wake up like that now, and I just I go right through the night. I don't hear tornadoes. I don't hear storms. I don't hear babies. He says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from God because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do? To you to make the sea calm down for us. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The captain goes down, and Jonah's asleep. They're all panicked. And they're praying to all of their pagan gods, these Phoenician and Syrian polytheists. And this runaway that they'd taken on board for this trip to Tarshish is down sleeping. And he'd already told them he's running from his God. They said, man, get up. Are you crazy? Get up and pray to your God. Ours have been strangely silent. Maybe yours, maybe yours can fix this problem. They begin questioning him where are you from who are your people what's going on with you they're doing an interview they're zach galifianakis in between two ferns maybe charlie rose is your speed they're questioning him but here's the here's the remarkable thing and you know this if you live very long when we run from god we get other people caught up in our mess this is one of the great lies of Western culture and supremely of our culture in America that what I do is my business and doesn't affect other people. God has simply ordered creation so that that is not true. That what I do affects you and what you do affects me. Sharon and I a few years back were uh, on a trip and we were flying back we had taken Karis our younger daughter with us and uh, we boarded the plane to fly back home to San Antonio and there was a lady on there with with a, a group of children sitting in front of us and she was the loudest human being on earth she made me look like a mute and she talked the entire flight 
loudly, addressing everything with her kids. She would not stop. We got off in Kansas City, which is not an airport you want to do a layover in. But we were stuck there for a few hours. That lady passes by and Karis overhears her saying she's got to catch, they've got to hurry to catch their next flight to San Antonio. And we were like, why, Lord? Why have we angered you? And Sharon said very sternly, husbands, you've been there. We cannot sit by that woman. This leg of the flight's longer. We can't do this and get off the plane sane. Because her mess was spilling all over everyone around her. And I don't mean the kind of we fly with kids mess, right? We've got a lot of grace for that. We've been flying with kids for years. I mean the I married crazy mess, right? Our mess, when we run, it affects the people around us. John Dunn, some of you will be familiar with and remember uh, from classes, maybe 16th and 17th century British poet and preacher, coined the phrase, no man is an island. He also coined this great line, wrote this great line, ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. What he was saying there is that we're all connected. We're all connected. When you look at verses 6 through 8, you realize that Jonah was a kind of impossible possibility. Because Jonah was both the problem and the solution. And can I just say with tact and love, sometimes you are the problem and the solution in your life. There's no one else you can blame for it. As good as we've gotten in our society at blaming everyone for everything but those who actually do it. Sometimes you and I are both the problem and the solution. And a believer running from God is like a doctor neglecting his own health. It's like a CPA cheating on his taxes who can't balance the numbers. It's like an attorney consistently breaking the law so that he winds up in court until you decide that you're going to be part of the solution in your own life. You're still running in the wrong direction. Now, you can't fix your life. You're not the solution in that sense. But you can submit yourself to the loving guidance of God and let Him do the work in your life that you so desperately need. Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 is the first time Jonah speaks. Up until this point, it's just been narration. And I'll tell you, um, we're not, you can't tell it here, but in the, the Hebrew Bible, there's 94 words before verse 9 and 94 words. Hebrew words after. That's not accidental. This statement is the center of chapter 1. Jonah answers and he says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. When it comes time to give a witness, even in his runaway state, Jonah gives a witness. Jonah gives a witness. And what we find in the following verses, that sometimes God uses the willing and unwilling participation of both believers and non-believers to accomplish His purpose on earth. The willing and unwilling participation of both believers and non-believers to accomplish what He intends 
to accomplish. Uh, revival breaks out on the boat. Look back at this, though. They're, they're terrified in verse 10. And the sea keeps getting rougher and rougher, and they say, hey, what do we need to do? Now look at Jonah in verse 12. He says, hey, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I'd have been like, you got it, brother. Step to the edge. Right? Because we got chow downstairs anyway, so step to the edge. We're going to get you off. But instead, in verse 13, you find these pagan guys who were up praying while the prophet was down sleeping. Instead, they tried their best to row back to land. Now, I mean it when I say, I'd have said, you got it. In fact, I'd have said, if you just run, you can jump over the edge and save us the effort. But they're trying to get him back safely to land. At this time, Israel had become very exclusive. They, by God's mercy and grace, under Jeroboam II, had re-extended their boundaries. Jeroboam II was a very nationalistic leader. And they were very proud of who they were and proud that they were God's people. And they, they didn't yet understand God's love for all nations. Yet as verses 14, 15, and 16 unfold, we find these pagan sailors worshiping God. Here's the amazing thing. Jonah runs away from God right into God's pursuing love, not just for him, but for the pagan sailors. This is Paul in prison saying, whatever, in life or in death, in all things Christ. If I'm here, I'll proclaim Christ to the guards. If I'm free, I'll proclaim Christ to everyone I can. Jonah's not doing this with the passion of Paul, but he's doing it in God's sovereign guidance nonetheless. A few years ago, our son Cade decided to join a chess club at school. Now, I'm more of a checkers guy. God's just not built me with the, to, to, to play the long game of chess, but I was trying to learn with Cade. And after a little while, I got to where I, I could see if I moved here, Cade would likely do this, and I'd go here. That was as far as I could ever think. Three moves in. But experts tell us that chess masters, chess masters can see 30 moves ahead. They know when you make a move all the way to the end of the game. And I, I would just say to you, if, if I can see three moves ahead, and you can see three moves ahead, and chess masters can see 30 moves ahead, how far ahead in your life and mine can God see? How far ahead of the game is God? You can't outrun Him. You can't surprise Him. Nothing that comes into your life catches the Trinitarian God off balance. He's like, Jesus, Spirit, come over here. We've got to talk. You're not going to believe what's just happened. Nothing causes God to lose balance and fall off His throne. Jonah runs and God pursues. And I'll just tell you this morning, that is true of you and I if we are in Christ Jesus. When we run, and we all do at times, God pursues. But ultimately, we're not in here this morning because of Jonah. We're in here because of Jesus. You know, the longest quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament it's in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, and it's from Jonah. 
where Jesus refers to himself as one greater than Jonah. Because God said to Jonah, go. And Jonah said, no. God said to Jesus, go. And Jesus said, yes. Jonah, you'll find out, God sends an underwater assistant to help Jonah. We'll look at that next week to get him where he needs to be. Jonah spends three days submerged in the belly of this beast. Jesus spent three days in the tomb. Jonah came back, spit out on dry land, in a sense back from death, but to die again. Jonah would kind of have two dashes on his tombstone, my nearly death and my for sure death. Jesus comes out three days later never to die again, having conquered sin and death and the powers of darkness and evil. Jonah was cast into the storm that ultimately he might be drawn back to God. Jesus was cast in the storm so that you and I might be drawn back to God. We're here because of Jesus and because of Jesus. You and I do not have to be runaways. My prayer for you this morning is that in whatever way, in whatever place in your life you're running from God, this morning you'll stop. You'll say, God, I want to know your love that pursues me. Your love that seems so reckless by every human standard. Your grace and mercy that are relentless. Give him whatever, you're, whatever area you're running in this morning. And you'll be amazed at what he'll do. Let's stand and pray.